This is Data Materiality, a podcast series about the ways in which digital data depends on physical forms and infrastructures, and comes to matter in practice and imagination. The impetus for this podcast is a three-year research project by the same name, Data Materiality, co-sponsored by Birkbeck's Centre for Interdisciplinary Research in Media and Culture and the Vasari Centre for Art and Technology. My name is Scott Rogers. I co-host this series with my colleague Joel McKim. In this episode, I spoke with Sam Kinsley, Senior Lecturer in Human Geographies at the University of Exeter in Devon, England, and the inaugural co-editor-in-chief of the open access journal Digital Geography and Society. Sam is interested in spatialities and geographical imaginations of technology and the future, about how our situated existence is inherently technical, as well as the stories we tell ourselves about technologies in our daily lives. He is a close interpreter as well as occasional translator of the work of late French philosopher Bernard Stiegler. So I was keen to take this opportunity to ask Sam about his own work as well as Stiegler's writing and how it might be a way of stepping back and thinking about how and why we might think about digital data and the systems through which data are collected and mobilized as industrial scale systems of memory. So let's go to that interview recorded on a rather hot British day in July 2021. I'd like to begin with your paper titled The Matter of Virtual Geographies, which has been widely cited and was also awarded the best paper prize in 2015 by Progress in Human Geography, the journal in which it was published. And just to note for our interdisciplinary audience of listeners, Progress in Human Geography is a highly ranked journal which specializes in critical review articles. So your starting point in that paper is the remarkably persistent idea of digital spaces as virtual. And not virtual in the way that's suggested by Deleuze to refer to imminent potential, which can be made actual, but rather virtual is this way of denoting the digital as a separate dimension of experience, usually against some notion of the real. And you spend a lot of time, actually, in the article discussing literature focused on the spatialities of software code and governing or helping produce everyday life. And this literature actually, actually largely avoids these virtual imaginaries and focuses rather directly on the materialities of digital or software spaces. And yet, you seem to be suggesting we need to take a further step back, that we need to slow down, we need to dig deeper and think about our relations with technology, not just technologies of computation, but technologies in general. So for this, you turn to the concepts of technics and technicity, which have diverse roots, but are strongly related to the work of the late philosopher Bernard Stiegler, as well as Gilbert Simondon. Why, in thinking about digital spaces, should we take this step back? I think that we should take that step back in order to orient our thinking of technology in general in relation to how we understand our experiences of space and place, but more particularly the ways in which the digital both is practiced and is imagined. So on the one hand, we have understandings of technology that exist across a diverse range of disciplinary contexts, and they will be more or less integrated into the kinds of debates that take place in those contexts. They're not always interlinked, and they don't always talk to one another. And so by taking that step back and thinking about, so why is technology important to the human? We can think about the ways in which that then matters to, or doesn't, to geography and to our forms of spatial experience. 
So how is it that space and place are performed, produced or processed through digital technologies or, or frankly, any technologies? And why does that matter to the kinds of wider questions that we might be asking as geographers, as sociologists and so on? So specifically, why does that matter to thinking about the digital in part because of the pervasive importance of digital technologies to our everyday lives, our everyday experiences, the fact that we are conducting this podcast through forms of mediation across the internet is a kind of signifier of precisely that. It's just everywhere. So is the enduring problem here that even in some of the more sophisticated conceptualizations of digital materiality, or indeed data materiality, which we're going to be coming to, that there is this recourse to some kind of essential humanity? So that, you know, rather than grappling with the fundamental co-constitution of technics and human, like Stiegler does, or exterior and interior, um, that even implicitly a lot of these conceptualizations of digital materiality fall back on this notion of the human against technology? Yeah, this is an, a really interesting issue that probably only academics get worried about. That even so, I think is an important issue because it underlays a lot of the ways in which even in popular culture, we think about what it is that is being done to us, with us, by us using technologies. So a case in point would be something like the ways in which the word algorithm gets used, the ways in which that by and large has come to connote a form of loss of control, perhaps, in the ways in which there are longer standing discourses around automation, for example. So the ways in which we can understand what a technology is, what it can do, what it does, is, one might think, inherently bound up to what it is that a human can do. What is it that technologies facilitate humanity to achieve? So the interesting thing that I think Stiegler provides us with, and he's not the first, but I think is one of the more compelling people to articulate the issue of technics is the human is inherently a technological being. That's what technics is. He uses allegorical and other ways of understanding precisely how that technological capacity works. But I think at base, the most significant thing that anybody I think can grasp of the story that he tells is that humans are tool users. More than that, we create tools that create other tools. And more than that, by virtue of that sort of system of tool use and tool making, we extend our capacities in particular ways. Now, there's all sorts of ways in which we might argue that, well, that's not peculiar to the human. There are other animals that use tools, and I don't think anybody would dispute that. But I think the interesting and valuable thing that Stiegler and the people he kind of draws together in conversation through his kind of prolific writing is that culture is necessarily contingent upon and in fact constituted by this way of extending ourselves. So you don't get all of the things that we understand or tacitly kind of associate with humanity without technology. So the relation that technics denotes is in Stiegler's terminology, a default of origin for the human, that you don't get the human without technology. And in some senses, you don't get quite a lot of the technologies that we are conscious of their existence without the human. And therefore, you kind of get this double bind where you don't get the one without the other 
but you can't draw a timeline back and chart a point of origin and say, well, you know, that's when the human starts. That's when we get uh, forms of technological being. In some senses, that's kind of the wrong problem to pose. Stiegler points out that actually we're constantly remaking what it is to be human with and through these technologies, these apparatuses that we are kind of using, inventing and modifying. So that's what that co-constitution means. And an important facet of that that Stiegler kind of draws out from the philosophical tradition of phenomenology and not least from the work of Husserl is the way in which that has a profound implication for memory. So Stiegler, like many French philosophers, kind of constructs a system. There's lots of jargon. And sometimes that can be helpful and sometimes that it might feel to some of some people out there that it's just unnecessarily complicated. But there is a kind of relatively simple way of understanding this. On the one hand, there is a kind of somatic or biological or nervous memory. There's our biological capacity to remember. And that's brilliant. You know, you can recall all sorts of things. You remember your partner's birthday, for example, you hope. Then again, remembering lists of things remembering inventories, remembering all of the things that we might associate with both the banalities and the really important underlying features of a complicated society, you know, that exceeds our biological capacities fairly swiftly. So how do you remember? Well, you remember by writing and you remember by recording and making marks of those inventories, those ideas. And in some senses, then you externalize or exteriorize your thinking. And interestingly, one might thus argue alongside Stiegler that actually that's a kind of spatialization of our memory too. There are ways in which that takes on a sort of physicality, but also constitutes, represents and produces forms of space, spatial experience and the kind of placing of memory. So in that sense, technicity, that capacity to exteriorize, that capacity to communicate memories, share memories, and record memories, not only matters to a kind of contemporary, I mean contemporary to the person who's attempting to record their their thoughts, matters to their contemporary audience, but significantly, especially when we begin to think about the implication of this for culture, that's an intergenerational capacity. The reason why we have a knowledge of history and the reason why archaeologists can tell us these extraordinary things about ancient Babylonia and so on is because those people made marks. And you can boil this down to some fundamentals too. There are ways in which not only words, but actions and our physical capacities are frozen in time by the marks that are left from those actions. So a flint axe produced several thousand years ago is not only a record or a representation of a particular way of life, but it's actually the recording of a set of practices Somebody's use of their limbs and their thinking process are recorded and frozen in time, they're held in time for us to see again. So there are ways in which that kind of exteriorization is not only about language, it's about all sorts of capacities that we associate with our humanity. So on this point about through our practices or through practices over time leaving marks, I think this is a good point to turn more directly to this matter of data. Reading your 2015 article from the journal Cultural Geographies, which is titled Memory Programs, the Industrial Retention of Collective Life, it 
strikes me that this is a lens really for thinking about the growing importance of data, you know, thinking of it in terms of what you call in the article, the industrialization of memory. And in that article, you do a bit of work unpacking Stiegler's notion of tertiary retention, which you've just, I guess, summarized now, although you didn't use a term, uh, which does extend Husserl's notion of, of primary and secondary retention. And just to sort of try and roughly, extremely roughly wrap this up, primary retention refers to the sort of consciousness of unfolding phenomenon. Secondary retention is sort of selective reimaginings of previous experiences. And tertiary retention for Stiegler refers to the ways in which memory is externalized in techniques. And you gave some examples like writing. We might also think about photography or film, sort of classic examples. And all of these then feed into protension, which is how we anticipate the next moment. And I guess act on it. So how and why might we think about digital data and the systems through which that data is not just collected, but also maybe enacted and mobilized as industrial scale systems of memory? So first and foremost, the industrialization of memory is not only about the recording and recollection. So yes, it is significant that not only with digital data, but the analog data that preceded them, the state for example, has extraordinary records on its citizenry and the ways in which um, we can understand what it means to be a subject are perhaps keenly concerned with precisely those sorts of articulations and recordings of ourselves, of our actions, our rights and responsibilities. So there's a longer standing history, perhaps, of that kind of industrialization of memory. But there's also a sense in which it's the recording as such that comes to be significant, not only the scope of the recording. So whereas in an analog world, to grossly oversimplify, there's a limited capacity for that recording. The argument might be, you know, only the important things were being recorded. And by important, what we might mean are important to matters of state, to matters of rights and responsibility, if we're thinking about the citizenry, and access to things like healthcare and so on. The banalities of everyday life were perhaps not being recorded. You began to get bits of that, perhaps, with the capacities for home recording, with cameras, video cameras, audio recorders, and so on. But those capacities were fairly finite. What we get with the digital, in the broadest sense in which we might use that term, is an ability to capture enormous amounts about who we are, what we do, where we've been, how we represent ourselves, how others represent us, the kinds of spaces we inhabit. So there's volume that becomes a kind of significant issue and feature. There's also speed. And again, Stiegler's not the first to point it out, but I think he argues it forcefully and cogently. If we grant that the digital is the next kind of phase in the advancement of our tertiary capacities for memory and memorization, then we can understand that the scope and pace of that recording matters to how we can then appreciate the world, how we then observe it and how we recall uh, our understandings of it. So if we're constantly recording stuff, if we're constantly referring to the little black mirrors in our pockets, <laughs> as Charlie Brooker has it, and that appreciation of the world around us is always and already mediated, then the retention protention circuit that you've already mentioned, becomes short-circuited because actually we're never getting the kind of primary retention without simultaneously having the tertiary one. So what Stiegler argues is what's happening then is a kind of, these are not his words, these are mine, a sort of rewiring. So there's a way in which our capacities for understanding the world 
And that's arguably the relation of technics itself is kind of being reworked such that there are kind of important challenges to how we understand our appreciation of the world around us. And that goes hand in hand. I didn't bring up the scope of recording just because it's interesting. It goes hand in hand. The pace and scope, they can't be separated. It's kind of time space. It's about the ways in which it's pace and scope and just the breadth of context which is being captured. So all of those things coming together constitute this industrialization of memory. So it's not just the capture, it's the way in which actually you don't get a kind of raw, for want of a better phrase, appreciation of the world without that recording and without that kind of capturing and sharing such that you don't necessarily get the nuances of an individual impression. What you get is the kind of shared industrialized impression of the world precisely because of those constant ongoing capturings that are happening at the same time as we're experiencing the world. So it sounds like what's really key here is that we're talking about a kind of collective or cultural dimension. I'm thinking about when I teach my students about topics like this, they often seem much more willing to adopt a notion like technicity or a similar idea like mediatization or some of the ideas you see in media theory, which uh, have family resemblance with um, Stiegler. They seem to find it easier to process this in relation to individual technologies and bodies. So, you know, for most of my students, it's not hard to see that smartphones or smart glasses or Bluetooth headphones potentially seem to blur some supposed boundaries between say, app ecologies, and then our actual hands or our field of vision or the sound coming in our ear holes. But I find when I'm discussing these issues with students, it seems like another thing entirely to think about technicity as this broader cultural condition or something to do with generations and passing on knowledge through generations. Do you have any sense of why that might be a challenge? Maybe it's just me and my students. I don't know. But um, is there something about seeing these kinds of questions about the processes that we might put under the label of technicity as a broader collective cultural dimension? I think one of the ways you put it in the article from Cultural Geographies is mediated through metastable systems of retention or exteriorized thought. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things going on there, perhaps. And I'll come back to the condition of metastability. But the first and foremost, I think there's something about novelty. There's something about the things that we pay attention to because they have, well, they have some sort of peculiarity. So they're significant because, well, I have to pay attention to them because they kind of demand my attention. Because they might be unfamiliar, because they're kind of getting in the way. Sometimes that's a positive thing. But to kind of bastardize a Heideggerian sort of version, they're, they're kind of more or less present at hand. And so the idea then of attempting to consciously reflect on all those things that are ready to hand, those things that we just assume that we don't think about using, like a pen, maybe like a bank card, then that just a lot of the time, perhaps it's just kind of a what sort of reaction. You know, why would I want to think about those things that are dull or uninteresting? I want to think about the shiny stuff, you know, because that's the stuff that in popular culture and various other kinds of discourses, we are invited to kind of uh, fetishize. And it's precisely that fetishization that may be at play there. You know, novelty is a part of how that fetishization happens, but there's ways in which there's all sorts of value that are attributed to those technologies that makes them considered worthy of appreciation. And the pair of scissors in my drawer, the pencil and pencil sharpener, you know, all of those things that are just there, they're just round, <laughs> they're part of life, they, they matter less. It's interesting how that functions. It's interesting how that produces this apparent stability of life. It produces a sense of continuity, perhaps, though that's probably a, a much bigger conversation. 
But there is a sense in which that stability is a kind of precarious achievement, to borrow John Law's phrase. And here, Bernard Stiegler draws upon the work of Gilbert Simondon to think about what that precarity is and what it means. There is a sense that those systems of retention, those systems of our exteriorization of thought, the ways in which we kind of have an understanding of the world and the ways in which we have a collective common sense around, well, the appropriate way for me to communicate with you is whatever, an email, a WhatsApp message. Whereas 20 years ago might have been an email, but it might have been a letter, might have been a phone call. And so we have these feelings of continuity but, but actually that's a kind of metastability. There is an overriding kind of sense of stability, but much like the ocean, it's kind of roiling and waving and there are all sorts of different shifts. And sometimes those shifts can be dramatic and you have a kind of inflection point or, you know, to continue to use my dodgy metaphor of the ocean, you have a tsunami <laughs> and there is a, there is a moment where that metastability totally breaks. But more often than not, what we get is shifts. We get what feel like continuations, but in many ways that can be about hindsight. And those continuations can also feel like they are fluid and they make sense because, as you put it, that kind of broader cultural condition is kind of dependent or at least codependent upon them. They, they kind of construct the substrate for our cultural intercommunication. They construct the substrate across which culture can ebb and flow. The ways in which we kind of understand our place in the world as a, a type of person you know, what fandom you feel associated with, for example. You know, one of the questions that I have been asked when I've been running those kind of icebreaker sessions in teaching when we've been 100% online is, what's your favourite Netflix programme? You know, that simple innocuous question freights a lot when you think about precisely the issues that we're thinking about now. You know, number one, teaching online, uh, for better or for worse. There's a mediation that's going on there that freights some of the kind of traditional understandings of the relationship between uh, teacher and student, but also kind of resets some of those. So that metastability is being a bit wobbled there, right? Number two, Netflix, a paid subscription media platform through which lots of us choose to pay money to get access to things that we might find entertaining. And then talk about, might talk about on WhatsApp, might talk about down the pub or the coffee shop, but it kind of brings around particular kinds of cultural capital. It brings around all sorts of ways of understanding one another and forging a kind of communality. So in some senses, then those various digital platforms that I've just kind of very briefly sketched out, they kind of forge the base layer platform upon which those kind of collective understandings of who we are, where we're from, and perhaps where we're going kind of get made and continually reperformed. Well, speaking of platforms, the article you have published in Cultural Geographies also has this detailed and fairly technical discussion of Facebook and specifically Facebook's Open Graph protocol. And I'm not going to ask you to rehearse that technical discussion here. But since Facebook is also such a widely relatable case, in the same way they say Netflix might be, uh, and I think many listeners probably will be able to recognize Facebook as semi-automating memory specifically, I wonder if you could say a bit about why we should dig deeper into doing something like you did in that article, which is unpacking the technical language used in Facebook protocols, You know the way Facebook presents itself to developers and describes its protocol using terms like nodes and edges, etc. What, what's the value of doing that? I think there are a couple of different answers to that question. First and foremost, for me at least, is that those discussions of how a socially, culturally and economically 
and perhaps politically significant company platform force in the world choose to represent how we use it and therefore how we produce culture and society have a power and an authority which needs to be questioned sometimes even if you think it's entirely benevolent it's worth knowing so how does that work why are different emphases placed on different things i don't think that way why don't i think that way so there are those kind of base layer kind of what we might teach as critical questions more broadly i think it's significant for the ways in which we might understand how technological innovation gets done how these kinds of platforms come about what sorts of knowledges and discourses they draw on not only to represent how these things function but also for authority so graph theory and particular versions of mathematical discourse they might seem neutral we might say well you know these are just ways of articulating complicated ideas that these kind of clever data scientists are using in order to make these extraordinary huge systems function and that is perhaps true but it's not the only thing that's true about how those terms and those discourses might be used they might also be used to lend an authority because they have this apparent neutrality their science and science has a particular version of authority that can be wielded by different people for different ends so there's that side of things and one might argue alongside people like Bruno Latour about how those particular kinds of practices enact forms of reality and have differing forms of agency depending on how they construct and perform and ultimately represent different bits of our lives and the kinds of relationships that, that our lives are made up from but i guess there's also ways in which we can return to this understanding of space and time uh which i'm kind of interested in as a geographer and it's precisely those ways of capturing everyday practices the things that we voluntarily disclose to facebook constantly it's precisely in that disclosure and that capturing that a particular version of space and time is being authored being constituted and thus able to be recalled in particular kinds of ways and so in some senses what it does is it produces a version of that industrialization of memory that given the number of users that Facebook has it becomes really significant and potentially problematic because there is an awful lot of power then over things like the kind of shaky and tenuous grasp of our collective truth as we have seen in general elections in various countries over the last 10 years you know this ha- can have profound consequences to how society is structured um how it, it gets understood by its various kind of constitutive members um and how that can be interfered with so now an overall way to frame your research is studying how people um institutions social fields tell stories about contemporary and future technologies so you've written for instance about how what you call the politics of anticipation unfolded in relation to debates about ubiquitous computing and similarly you sent me this great unpublished paper where you speak of an algorithmic imaginary which asks quote what is meant when different people use the word algorithm and quote so with this 
orientation to anticipation in mind, how might we approach narratives about big data or open data or, you know, data driven this or that? How should we attend to the genealogies of these notions, but not just thinking about them, I guess, as ways of thinking or as discourses, but also for their technicity? The commonality, I guess, I have, or so the common thread, I guess, I have across a number of different things that I've tried to study is a way of trying to make sense of why I was so enthralled by and captured by science fiction as a child. (laughs) Which sounds flippant, but I think there is a kind of grain of something important in that, which is the ways in which we understand what kinds of world it is possible for us to inhabit and produce and how that can kind of gather particular forms of cultural significance. You know, you might think about the ways in which our kind of contemporary 0.0001% super wealthy and influential people are choosing to spend their money right now. In some ways, what they're trying to do is precisely enact some of those things that we were watching in blockbuster films in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, reading about in comic books and so on. So in that sense, there's a kind of wider cultural import to how we understand what's possible, what kinds of possible world we can bring into being, we can create for ourselves. And that's a hugely kind of long-standing set of concerns there. We can think about uh, utopia and we can think about all sorts of understandings of progress. And there are all sorts of critical reactions to those things. I guess where my interest comes in is both in terms of the discourses that get constituted, but also in terms of the kind of agency that those discourses and the technologies that they are communicated by, with and constitute have in our kind of contemporary lives. And and that's what one might call their technicity. So an orientation towards anticipation Um, is not only about the ways in which we create technologies that can react faster than us, for example. People like to use the example of the Tesla autopilot that kinds of breaks faster than the human can. People like to think about uh, machine learning in terms of things like image recognition systems that can can just operate way faster than uh, human capacities kind of enable. And this again kind of goes along that kind of well-trodden path of human versus machine and so on. What I think that misses is, well, all of those things are made. <laughs> you know, all of those things have been carefully thought about. And, I, you know, I'm not depriving the technologies themselves from some sort of agency, but it's a kind of, it's a kind of quasi-autonomy in most of these cases. They're part of wider systems, which they're kind of codependent upon. So, you know, that Tesla autopilot couldn't have worked without loads and loads of training data, simply wouldn't have worked without... Um, the computer programs being fed in masses of hours of data captured of people driving, how they drive, what kinds of things happen as a result. So there's all sorts of kind of industrialized retentions of driving practices and how that functions. Of course, those are peculiar to the context in which they were uh, captured, and we might return to that particular issue in a minute. But they're also contingent upon sort of wider infrastructures. So there's a sense in which the Tesla doesn't work without the cellular network, doesn't work without the power network, doesn't work without all these other kinds of infrastructures right, which they are reliant upon. So it's a sort of double bind. There's a sense in which we don't get those technologies without a kind of prior imagination, without a kind of spur to the ways in which we imagine what's possible in the world. 
without kind of wider discourses of why these things might be desirable, why they might be profitable, why we might attach different kinds of values to them. But likewise, we don't get those discourses without already having sort of a fairly nuanced understanding of contemporary technological forms of life in the same way as which, you know, the apocryphal story of we wouldn't have got sliding doors at the entrances to our supermarkets without Captain Kirk walking through a sliding door in the original Star Trek series. So there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, that thought and discourse are really important to how we can understand the worlds we bring into being, both through our own practices, but also through wider forms of meaning and significance being culturally constituted, socially constituted. But there's also a sense in which they freight particular forms of agency in the world. You can think about the reception to voice assistants as a kind of contemporary example. When companies like Amazon brought out their voice assistants, Amazon and Apple are kind of the obvious examples. When those two companies brought out their voice assistants, Alexa and Siri, it wasn't uncommon to hear, why would I want to talk to my computer, my telephone, my devices? Isn't that really clunky? You know, I can just tap buttons. I can still get the same results that I always had. And yet now, when you listen to a podcast... One of the things that is often said in the strap line is we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or just ask your voice assistant to uh, play name of show. So they're embedded. And one critical response to that would be perhaps a kind of Marxian response of, well, it's been fetishized and it's got you know particular kinds of political economic agency behind it. And that, that's how that's functioned. But one might also say that there's particular ways in which the kind of metastable fabric has been slowly adjusted by which the various ways in which the relation of techniques, at least in the global north, and in wealthy countries, has been pushed and pulled such that those uh, voice assistants have become not only desirable, but perhaps for some entirely necessary. But they're not innocent. As with any kind of technology, and as a social scientist, we might argue, you know, kind of as with anything in society, they have values baked in, they freight values. The politics of anticipation that I have described in my work more or less relates to the discourses rather than the kind of technical aspects of how we might understand those technologies, but I think it can be applied that way too. So in terms of the discourses and the ways in which we think about these technologies, the politics of anticipation is precisely around who gets to choose, who has agency in in how these things get integrated into our lives, how are they represented, by whom, in what sorts of contexts, who has the power, who has the power to say, well, that thing should be made and those things definitely shouldn't. So that's a kind of politics of anticipation. How might it apply to technicity? Well, it's then that we can draw on another bit of my work, which I haven't really done anything with recently, but I'm still interested in, which is around ideas about our attention and the ways in which our attention is captured, enacted and acted upon. So we can think about the ways in which we pay attention to screens, pay attention to headphones, all of those ways in which I talked about the industrial facade of space and time, uh, as the Italian post-Fordist um, theorist uh, Christian Marazzi kind of highlights in his book on the new economy, what we get is a kind of capturing of our leisure. So all of those things that we have never kind of thought about as work, we have never really thought about as having a kind of economic value. They were about pleasure. They were about 
relaxation. But if those forms of pleasure and relaxation are mediated by a screen, and if advertising is served alongside or you're paying your subscription, as in the case of Netflix, then your time has a financial value. As Stiegler has pointed out himself um, in his book series, Disbelief and Discredit, this has a very potent political import. It necessarily reimagines what it means to be a member of society, what it means to be human, perhaps. Our agency to choose, our agency to think about, well, to not think, actually, to kind of calm down, to have moments of recuperation are threatened It's very fashionable to kind of argue, oh, the next five to 10 years are crucial. Right now, this is a really important inflection point. I'm not sure I can say that with any kind of real conviction, but I think we do live in a very interesting moment where the pace of that capturing, the pace with which that um, apparatus can be wielded is potentially problematic. There is always a possibility for optimism, though, And here is where I see Bernard Stiegler's greatest value, because he was not depressed. (laughs) I was very fortunate to meet him once, and he was a lovely man, incredibly kind, had a lot of time for my daft questions, and was really interesting and interested in discussing ideas. Remarkable man, really, for lots of different reasons. And please do check his biography for why I might have said that. Um... The optimism that he embodies is the way in which he says, so these things don't necessarily have to be so. And drawing upon Plato, in fact, he argues that technics is a pharmacon. The way in which we can understand these technological relations, they're not normatively positive or negative. They can be used to either end, but they contain the possibilities and the capacities for making it otherwise. So within these technologies, within the relationship of techniques as such, the way in which we understand ourselves as having technological capacities and the way in which we can live our lives with and through those technologies, they're not set in stone. We don't have to do it this way. It's not to say it's easy to change, but the potential for that change is always and already there. That's it for this episode. It was a real pleasure to speak with Sam. His insistence on conceiving of digital data and digitalization more generally within the much longer historical conditions of human technicity was really helpful. What seems clear is that, for Sam, the point is not so much to replace narratives of rupture with some about continuity. Rather, thinking about the human condition as always already technical gives us a way to specify both ruptures and continuities, without recourse to consoling ideas about some kind of non-technical human purity. In addition to giving us some helpful conceptual and philosophical orientations for thinking about data materiality, as I was editing our interview, what struck me was how Sam's responses to my questions also amount to a rather accessible introduction to some of Bernard Stiegler's thought, and Sam's own interpretation of that thought. From technicity, to to memory or retention, to economies of attention, and Sam's own work on technological anticipation. For sure, it's an interview I will be encouraging my students to give a listen. That's it for me this time around. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, if you want to know more about the Data Materiality Project, including this podcast series, visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash Vasari. That's V-A-S-A-R-I, where information about the project should be easy to find.